Hi, I'm Paul Greenberg, author of the New York Times bestseller Four Fish and American Catch. And I'm Nick Mink, co-founder of the direct-to-consumer seafood company Sitka Salmon Shares. And what do we have in common, Paul? We like fish. That's right. And Paul and I have partnered to bring you an eight-episode series called Fish Talk. Each episode, Paul and I will trade off as hosts to take you on a journey from our coast to our kitchens so that we can better understand how fish get to our plates. So, Paul, what should listeners expect from upcoming episodes? Well, Nick, let's face it. For non-fishy people, fish are confusing. They're confusing to cook. They're confusing to clean. What's wild? What's farmed? All these different choices you have to make if you're going to eat fish in a responsible way. So on this podcast, we're going to talk to conservationists, scientists, chefs. At the end of each episode of Fish Talk, you will be a little less confused about fish. I couldn't agree more, Paul. All right, let's dive in. I'm Beefsteak Charlie, and I'm warning you, my free shrimp and salad bar could ruin your appetite. Shrimp! Oh, shrimp. 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 Oh, shrimp. Shrimp. Oh, shrimp. When I was a kid, the ocean seemed impossible to exhaust. You just took what you wanted. The amount of seafood we take from the oceans today has tripled in my lifetime. This ad from a cheeseball restaurant chain called Beefsteak Charlie's pretty much summed it up. In the ad, a couple comes into a restaurant and goes berserk over the unlimited shrimp and salad bar, and they proceed to gorge themselves. Your steaks? Steaks? I'm warning you, my free shrimp and salad bar with dinner could ruin your appetite. And so, here we are today. We now take 80 to 90 million tons of fish and shellfish out of the sea every year, the equivalent of the human weight of China. So the question going forward is, can we still eat seafood with a clear conscience? That's what we're going to look at on Fish Talk. And that's why we're going to start with what is by far the most consumed seafood in America, shrimp. Nick, what are you doing there? I'm just uh, taking a couple of these shrimp and putting them into a pan of hot oil. All right. Uh, They're sizzling up, frying up, and I'm really excited to to be able to eat these in a couple minutes. Yeah, I just just fired it up as well. I got three different pots here because we actually have three different kinds of shrimp that we're going to try and cook here today. We got some wild uh, Louisiana shrimp. We have some farmed shrimp from Vietnam. And then we have these vegan shrimp that are called, what does the box say again? Mind blown. Mind blown. blown. (laughs) We've got mind blown shrimp. And so the point here is we're going to try and see how these different kinds of shrimp taste. We have this recipe here. It's not too complicated. Chef Andrea Rusing, who is famous in North Carolina for starting the restaurant Lantern, and she's going to join us in a sec. But I asked her, how could we do these three shrimp in a way that it was like a level playing field so that all three shrimp could kind of compete against each other? So I'm dusting up in this mixture of potato flour, cornstarch, and salt. I'm keeping it super simple. So let the frying begin. I took a little of Paul Perdome's magic seasoning blend, seafood magic, and I substituted that instead of salt. And, oh, uh, you, and you, you apostate, you. There was a famous chef about 15 years ago on TV 
he said to kick it up a notch. I don't know if you remember that guy, Paul. Emerald Lagasse. Oh yeah, uh-huh. uh-huh. Emerald Lagasse. You kick it up a notch, and this these are these are Louisiana flavors, and and uh, my wild shrimp they cooked in about thirty seconds. Yeah, that's remarkable. I'm cooking them now, and and everything is is cooking up pretty quick. Before we get to our taste test, Andrea, please introduce yourself. I'm Andrea Rusing. I have a restaurant in Chapel Hill, North Carolina called Lantern, and I love shrimp. <laughs> shrimp, 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 shrimp. And you and I are old enough to remember seeing the Beefsteak Charlie's commercial that we rolled at the head of the show, where all those people were gorging themselves on shrimp. Yes, and I can't think about shrimp without also thinking about a salad bar and all-you-can-drink beer, wine, and sangria. Before we get to our taste test, and we followed your instructions to the letter, although Nick went slightly off-piste and he added, what was the seasoning you added? Don't tell her. I, I, I added Paul Prudhomme's Seafood Magic. <laughs> I don't, I'm sorry. No, I'm I sorry, think that's a, but... great, that's a great idea. Like a lot of color, like a little bam in there. And you added that to all of the two non-plant-based shrimps? To the non-plant-based shrimp, I did a little bam. I did a little, I kicked it up a notch. Paul and I were actually talking about that. <laughs> So, Andrea, let's talk a little bit about shrimp as a restaurant owner. Can you really own a restaurant and not serve shrimp? We've tried, and it's proved to be a challenge. And it's a conversation that people don't necessarily want to have when they're out to dinner. We've done dinners where we just do a shrimp dinner, but then we'll serve all of the bycatch from that particular boat. We talk to staff about shrimp a lot. And, yeah, we kind of try to encourage it to just not be these, like, huge, enormous portions of shrimp, but shrimp mixed in with vegetables and other things. But shrimp is probably one of the number one things. Like if you have food that you need to move, if you add shrimp to it, you'll sell out that night. Really? So you'd be like, like you have some, some moldy looking artichokes. If you threw some shrimp on top, that would work. (laughs) Exactly. Put a shrimp on it. (laughs) That's really funny. I never, I I never knew that. That's really funny. But let's back up. Why are shrimp potentially, you, you've always, you know, I've known you for a number of years. You've always, I think we first met at the Chef's Collaborative, which is this union of environmentally, socially conscious chefs. You've always tried and strived to have your restaurants not just be food-wise good, but also planet-wise good. So what's the problem with shrimp? A couple problems with shrimp. One is, of course, the bycatch. So for every pound of shrimp that we serve in a restaurant, Numbers really vary in, t- in terms of season and where stuff's being caught, but I th- I've heard 12 to 1, I've heard 5 to 1, sometimes people say 2 to 1, and that's bycatch to actual shrimp, right? So every pound of shrimp that we're serving, maybe as much as 10 pounds of other species are being thrown away. That's a very debatable number, and, and shrimpers will really get into it with you, but that's kind of the main problem with shrimp in terms of our position, though, of course, sometimes really sensitive species will also be in that bycatch. So that's a big concern as well. But then at the same time, there's lots of farm shrimp coming in, right? From outside of the country. A hundred percent. And I think that in most of the, for example, in the beach in North Carolina, it's really hard to find a wild shrimp that's being served. There's this famous shrimp burger place and they're all tiny, tiny shrimp that are coming from Thailand or Mexico, just depending on the time of year. I've had these conversations, particularly with one restaurant owner. He has a place called the Sanitary Fish Market in Moorhead City. 
And he tells me that when people eat real wild shrimp in his restaurant, they think it's shrimpy. They've become so used to kind of the chemical dipped farm raised shrimp that people now in many places in the world completely associate the shrimp flavor with the farm raised shrimp and are, are grossed out by the wild shrimp. But I mean, the the workhorse of the shrimp bar, of the salad bar of Beefsteak Charlie's and its followers is the farmed Asian shrimp. So what's the problem with the farmed Asian shrimp? We don't know who's working in those shrimp farms. We don't know how they're being paid. There's very little transparency. They're often in really ecologically sensitive areas, like a mangrove forest that's providing like a mangrove. It's almost like they're in the nurseries of the oceans, right? And so we're damaging those environments. And because of the way it works economically, it's much cheaper to kind of like go into an area, establish a shrimp farm. And then when disease and other factors kind of make it unsustainable to just move to a new place and destroy that place. I think those are the big ones. Yeah. And I should point out, you know, having just written a whole climate book, mangrove forests are four times as powerful as carbon sequesterers than tropical rainforests. So Mm. we're really literally digging up our best carbon sinks so that we can grow more shrimp. But (laughs) let's shrimp, shrimp, shrimp. But let's not delay the shrimp anymore. Actually, so as a segue, I think we should all we should squeeze our shrimp and see if they feel like shrimp. Okay, so let's squeeze the wild shrimp first. And I think it feels solid, pretty solid, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, let's squeeze the farm shrimp. Maybe a little mushier? Yeah, a little mushier. Let's squeeze the vegan. What's it called? Mind blown. Mind blown. Caps. Well, I have to tell you, my mind blown, what does is, what is your mind blown feel like? It feels spongy, but it feels very shrimp-like. A little bit of a spongier shrimp. What do you think, Andrea? I think it feels like a rubber shrimp. A rubber? <laughs> well, like just, you know, like it has that kind of elasticity. It bounces yep. back. It's true. And I'm finding that I'm trying to straighten my shrimp and it bounces back. Mm-hmm. Do you have that too? Yeah. It's resilient. It, it is resilient. Okay. All right. Should we do the same thing? Should we go wild farmed vegan? All right. So let's everyone take a bite of the wild. We're going to come back and tell you how it all tasted. But first, let's talk a little bit more about how these three different shrimp came to market. What's behind these three shrimp? What makes them tick? Well, I happen to have spent some time with shrimp people over the years. For my book, American Catch, I hung around the shrimp docks in Louisiana just after the Gulf oil spill, trying to wrap my head around the fact that Louisiana is losing its shrimp nursery at a rate of about a football field's worth of marsh every hundred minutes. While down there, I spent some time with Thomas Email, a scientist who works with local shrimpers, trying to keep them in business. I caught up with Thomas earlier this month to ask him about the state of play with wild American shrimp. I am Thomas Email. I am the director of the Louisiana Fisheries Forward Fisheries Education Program in the state of Louisiana, and I also manage the Louisiana Direct Seafood Program, where we help fishermen and small processors develop products and market directly off the boat. So I started working uh, in the industry in 1985 when I came to work with LSU Ag Center in Sea Grant. And my role was to work with commercial fishermen and aquaculture and seafood processing and all of that. And I've been doing that 
now for 35, 36 years and, and hope to continue. So that's what I do. I'm out there in the field. I'm seeing it all. I, the alligator industry, the crab, the fin fish, the oysters. I mean, it's such a rich, productive state of colorful people, self-reliant people. I mean, it's just a it's just an incredible place to be, to live, and to work. And I love fried shrimp. I mean, don't put me, don't put a plate of that in front of me. I'm gonna eat it. All right. Well, listen, we're here to talk about shrimp. Americans eat so much shrimp. I think we eat 15 pounds of seafood every single year, and out of that 15 pounds, four or five of it every year is is shrimp. Can you tell me, give us a big overview of the shrimp situation, and where does Louisiana wild shrimp, where does it fit into the whole story of shrimp over the last, say, 30, 40 years? The big bulk comes from the Gulf of Mexico. And that reason is because we have such a vast wetland system. I mean, we are America's wetlands, and we have all these marshes, and that's the nursery grounds for the shrimp that feed into the Gulf of Mexico. Louisiana is by far the largest producer of shrimp in the Gulf of Mexico. And can you tell me, what is the life cycle of the shrimp that we, you know, when we eat Louisiana shrimp, what is the life cycle we're participating in? It's very interesting. And I go back to the nursery ground. So what happens is that mature shrimp spawn in full strength seawater offshore. Okay. So there's a, there's a cycle where in the spring they will lay eggs offshore. So you have the adult shrimp out there. They'll lay these eggs in the offshore full-strength seawater, so very salty. And then the eggs will hatch out there. And through the tides and the winds, the eggs will hatch into various larval stages until they get to what looks like a small shrimp, a juvenile shrimp. And those migrate all the way back up into these nursery areas in the wetlands, in these brackish water zones. That's where they grow. They ask what, what they might they eat in there. Well, they eat all the microorganisms in the vegetation that's breaking down. And think of the marshes like a big pasture. And they grow in there through the early spring and summer months. And then our shrimp season will open, for example, in May, early spring. Those shrimp that were blowing in from early in the year, those shrimp will begin to be harvested. And so that's how it works. So they spawn offshore. They grow up inshore as they mature then they migrate back offshore so it's a cycle let's talk a little bit about this marsh stuff a little bit more we're losing louisiana marsh to various forms of degradation can you tell me a little bit about that i mean what's really going on down there well if you look at you have to look at the the geology of the coastal louisiana it was built by the mississippi river which over thousands of years has shifted various deltas will emerge and then subside What's happened, though, is that the processes that build those marshes, that's all now controlled by man through levees and water control, flood control. So the marshes don't get nourished. And so what happens over time is these areas subside. They sink. There's fault zones along the coast. So what was once marsh then becomes open water. Naturally, the Mississippi River would probably shift from where its path is now westward and be coming out down the Atchafalaya River. 
But there's water control structures that keep that from happening, though they're challenged often when we get these big Mississippi River floods. And so we have spillways and different structures to keep all this stuff aligned. It doesn't happen like it used to. And so what's happening is that coastal areas are are disappearing. It's really changing now in the last, you know, in the last 50 years, there's just been an incredible amount of marsh loss down here in the coast. Can you tell me a little bit about, from your point of view, and the last 30, 40 years, the challenges that shrimpers in the Gulf have faced with the way that markets have been globalized and things have changed. So lead us through the history from what was a purely wild product to something that's completely mixed up now. There was a time when you were a shrimper in Louisiana, and this was before the 80s, where you could buy a shrimp boat, build a shrimp boat, work your life in the industry, pass your boat to your son or your daughter. It was a thriving industry because we were the big source, the Gulf of Mexico. A fisherman could go out, make a trip, sell all of his shrimp to the dock, who then would sell it to the processor. We were the only supply and the demand was high and the prices to the vessels were incredible. Then in comes aquaculture, farm-raised shrimp from around the world, from Ecuador, from India, from tropical places where they can grow shrimp in ponds. And that product started coming into the market. And what happened then was that the price for domestic shrimp, which had to compete directly with it on price, we could not compete with the cheap shrimp that came in from overseas. And that's still kind of the story today is that the grand majority of shrimp that's consumed in this country, maybe 90%, is imported from tropical countries that I'd mentioned. And so the challenge is in Louisiana is how do you keep an industry alive with that kind of a competition? Because the profits aren't the same anymore. So You have to do it really differently. And so there's been a great exodus since the 80s from the industry. There's less fishermen. There's less boats. But they're a lot more efficient in how they do it. But it's not as lucrative at the fisherman level as it once was. One time I hosted some shrimp farmers from Ecuador. They grow this white shrimp there. It's a Pacific white shrimp. And they have the hatcheries and the ponds and... It's grown in mangroves and they feed it. So there I was with this businessman, very successful businessman who moves lots and lots of shrimp into the United States market. And we sat down to dinner and had some Louisiana shrimp, big platter of shrimp. We're sitting there talking and he's just sitting and eating and enjoying himself. And he said to me, he said, oh my gosh to taste a shrimp that really has some flavor. He said, you cannot beat Gulf of Mexico white shrimp. (laughs) So that I've never forgotten that, you know, here's a guy that's makes a fortune growing this shrimp. And here he is eating the local shrimp that we have wild and natural. And he himself just declares how much superior of a flavor and eating shrimp it is than even to the things that he grows. So I appreciated his honesty. So 
those of us, I think, who are interested in seafood and take an interest in the ocean, we hear various things that argue against wild shrimp. You know, you hear about turtle bycatch, you hear about 10 pounds of discarded fish for every pound of shrimp that gets caught. Some people are apt to choose something that seems a little more innocuous. Farming sounds like a good idea. Can you tell me, I mean, I mean, just devil's advocate, with all these things going against Gulf shrimpers, with you have foreign imports coming in, you have wetland loss, you have all these kinds of things. I mean, what's the point of even pursuing this as a product in the market? And what's the point of continuing the work that you're doing? I mean, sorry to put you on the spot here, but sometimes it just seems like a really difficult case. Well, as you, you, but you have to look at how people make a living. This is a heritage industry that goes back a you know, hundred years. And it's part of the fabric of these coastal communities that people are commercial fishermen. And it is so regulated with turtle excluder devices and all of that. And you, but you look at, you got to look at these fishermen. The last thing that they want to do is catch a turtle or any of that. And I think there's some myths that are portrayed by those that don't really understand what's going on down here in this industry. We still have a vibrant industry. We still produce, I mean, think about it, 100 million pounds of shrimp. That has value. This is a, a renewable, natural resource. Well, look at aquaculture. Aquaculture has its challenges, and it's not the panacea that people think. It's not so much where do they come from, it's what, how are they grown, what conditions are they grown in, all that. But you go, if you look around the world and you look at where do the wild fisheries exist, and we have the most regulated and managed fisheries in the world here in the United States. But you have to look at this also is that a lot of people, they want wild product. Why? Because it's natural. It's pure. And it still is the best tasting seafood on the earth. If you eat a farm-raised shrimp and then you go and eat a Vermilion Bay white shrimp, you'll say, oh my gosh, what have I been eating? Before I introduce our next guest, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Ecosystems are complex. Buying responsibly caught seafood doesn't have to be. Sitka Salmon Shares delivers a monthly share of seafood to your door that's sourced with the health of our fisheries, oceans, and communities in mind. Learn more about their wild-caught Alaska seafood and the fishermen who caught it, and find expertly crafted recipes at sitkasalmonshares.com. Most fish stories have not just two sides, but sometimes more like 20. About a dozen years ago, I saw a different side of the shrimp story when I traveled to Vietnam to understand more about shrimp farming. There, I met a tall, expansive Italian, fluent in Vietnamese, named Flavio Corsin. At the time, Flavio was a scientific advisor to Vietnamese fish and shrimp growers, trying to help them become better farmers. This show gave me an excuse to get back in touch with Flavio, who now works in Europe and advises a large aquaculture investment fund called Aquaspark. I'm Flavio Corsin. I'm the director of partnerships for Aquaspark. I lived in Vietnam for 14 years, primarily working in aquaculture. I was there since the mid-90s and I worked in shrimp farming in Southeast Asia, but also in Latin America. We met, I was counting up the years, I think 14 years ago in Vietnam. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, a lot is a lot has changed. And handsome that time. Uh, well, you know, I have the pictures to prove we were both younger and handsomer, but a lot has changed in those fourteen years. But the thing that really has stayed the same is that here in America, we're still eating a lot, a lot of shrimp. Is that the case over there in Europe as well? Yeah, uh, here as well. How did you find your way to aquaculture and then eventually to Vietnam? Oh. Uh, now we are going really back. <laughs> the, okay, so I was uh, studying natural sciences. I fell in love with a girl. She basically was uh, studying the behavior of fish underwater. So, of course, so she was uh, diving and uh, snorkeling. And then I started doing that and I fell in love with the marine environment. And I always had a passion for, uh, for a production, for making things, producing things. And I said, how can I combine this beautiful new world that I'm discovering with my passion for, uh, for production? How did you end up in Vietnam? As I remember, you lived in actually in Vietnamese villages and did aquaculture development, particularly with shrimp in some of those places in southern Vietnam, no? Yeah, that's correct. So this was uh, 97, 98. So after the master in Sterling, I was offered a PhD uh, in the University of Liverpool. Uh, And the research was in uh, Vietnam and India. And the research was a very applied research. I mean, as applied as it gets. I mean, living in a garage, in a village, in the Mekong Delta. So (laughs) (laughs) that's where I ended up in Vietnam. And the research was very interesting because it was about epidemiology, which nowadays everybody knows what epidemiologists do because of COVID. Probably the only positive thing that came out of COVID. You studied like shrimp COVID or (laughs) shrimp epidemiology, right? That's correct. That's correct. It was aquatic epidemiology and was applied to uh, to shrimp in that case, and plus other fish and so on, which was uh, very interesting because, of course, uh, when you're dealing, epidemiology is about diseases in populations. And when you're dealing with aquaculture, you are always dealing with the populations because you put multiple animals into a pond or a, or a cage. Therefore, it was a really fascinating uh, sector. I remember you spoke pretty good Vietnamese, but kind of like an Italian. <laughs> yeah, that's what my wife, I got married to Vietnamese eventually as well. We speak Vietnamese, so she might understand what I'm, uh, what I'm saying in spite of the accent. <laughs> but I, I remember there being a lot of gesturing. My impression, my just one week in Vietnam, was that it's a fairly reserved culture and that you were, they were sort of thrown by you because on the one hand, you spoke the language, but you were very expansive, sort of outside of maybe their comfort zone. So it always was interesting for me to watch you speak with some of the Vietnamese farmers when I was there. Yeah, you have to find your way to be a local with your own self. So it's not being a local like a local, but it's being how would a Flavio behave if he was a Vietnamese Flavio? So that's that's where I found the sweet spot, you know, that's that's the art. Oh, well, when you get an Italian, uh, 90 kilos, uh, trying to use the infrastructure of uh, Vietnamese, which are 40, 50 kilos, then uh, you enter into all sorts of problems. So I had the bridges collapsing under me and me falling down into ponds. And when I was trying to throw the cast net like a farmer, me and the cast net were so heavy that I was sinking. And I had to put myself walking on four just to be able to move because then I had to spread my my weight. And the farmers were looking at me and they were saying, why does he go like this? 
can you now just walk? And that was my life actually for six months. That was a really entertaining for the farmers, less entertaining for me that I was almost drowning a couple <laughs> of times uh, under the weight of the infrastructure that we were trying to use. <laughs> so let's back up a little bit. Explain to me, where did shrimp aquaculture come from? What's the timeline and why did it even start? That's a good question. Let's talk about the late 80s. I was uh, finishing off the, some of the studies since the early 90s were working on, uh, on aquaculture. And that time was called the Blue Revolution. I mean, everybody was saying this is going to be, I mean, captured fisheries, our resources are limited. We really need to harness the power of the animals to be able to farm them to create or to feed the growing population. To do in the sea what we more or less have done on land. But, yeah, correct. So if you think about uh, capture fisheries, really like uh, hunting, okay? So if you start uh, shooting deer and you say, oh, this is my new industry of shooting deer, that arguably is not going to be a very profitable industry because there are not enough animals and the oceans are bigger, then you can have a lot of fish and shrimp in the ocean. So what was happening at the beginning was really about, listen, you know, you can make these products, this shrimp in ponds, okay? And it grew from a tradition of actually doing it. So if you think about the Mekong Delta, but where there were thousands and thousands of farmers taking in the shrimp with a, with a lunar cycle, no? You are taking in the shrimp, you close the dike, then they feed into the pond, and then you open up the, the gate, and then the shrimp come out, you harvest them, so you don't feed them, you don't do anything, you don't stock it. And that was the original uh, production system. It's like uh, herding a, a flock of sheep. You get to keep them there, they eat, and then they are growing out of the natural environment. Then slowly, in the 80s, 90s, they started saying, well, you know, can we do more with this? So people started uh, stocking those ponds, even if you don't use any feed. And some other uh, farmers, so they started digging the ponds a bit deeper and then started feeding them. It became almost industrial at that point. From what I understand, it's this transition from this sort of artisanal method to this industrial method. That's when we start to kind of get alarm bells from non-government environmental organizations. You start to get pushback from fishermen who feel like their livelihoods are being endangered. You start to hear about antibiotics, mangrove forest destruction. What happened there? I mean, were these legitimate problems that happened when they went from this artisan system to this industrial system? Yeah, because, uh, so, they, first of all, the artisanal system, you still have to cut some of the local, of done the mangroves, but you do it in a way in which, uh, I don't know, it's a bit milder. You can keep uh, plants and mangroves and have some of the ponds. It's a much more integrated system. But when you do it in an industrial way, I mean, this species at that time was uh, largely, in the, especially in Asia, was a tiger shrimp. They, um, they live in brackish water, which means uh, they have to be in a water that is not seawater and is not a freshwater. Okay, so that water is exactly the water where mangroves grow. And you can't have mangroves if you want to do intensive shrimp production. You can't have mangroves and shrimp. This is a serious issue from a climate point of view, because from what I understand, mangrove forests are incredibly powerful sequesters of carbon. Is that right? That's correct. And also you have, of course, a service provided by mangroves uh, in dealing with the tsunamis and storms. Coastal protection. Correct. Then you have, of course, a lot of uh, little animals are growing in the mangroves and then they become adults and they are used in capture fisheries. So people that are reliant on these populations to be there that are not there, the local communities not having a livelihood anymore. So you have these 
industrialization of these farms. You have mangroves being taken out. What else is going on? At the beginning, it was all beautiful. So at the beginning, you stock the shrimp, you feed them, they grow, you harvest them, and you make money. So it was really nice. In the late 80s, then you start having bacterial diseases. Of course, you have to keep the environment healthy for the shrimp to grow. And the more you grow one crop after another crop, then you get this sediment on the bottom. And then basically makes it not a very nice environment for the shrimp to grow. And they started getting um, these bacterial, which are opportunistic bacteria. So they are bacteria that you could avoid. But because the environment in the pond was polluted, then they were getting problems. Then you start having to change the practices. And that they, I, I would say this was the first shift towards improving the industry. You say, listen, guys, we can't continue like that because this bacteria kills the, um, the shrimp. And that is a waste of money. From what I had heard when I was in Vietnam was that there was this sort of pond abandonment practice where your pond would go bad, you'd have different diseases, and then the farmers would abandon the pond and move on to another pond, and then exacerbating the whole mangrove situation. Yeah, that happened as well, because after a while, the pond is so bad that uh, you have either a, a huge investment to remove all the stuff that is under there, or, uh, I mean, very black soil, or change location. What changed in the industry to deal with these different diseases? From what I understand, there was, there was white spot, there was early mortality syndrome. At the beginning, in terms of cycles of diseases, you had the first, you had vibriosis, which was a bacterial disease, which was dealt by better management practices. You reduce the feed, you check better, don't throw too much stuff in because it kills the shrimp. Okay, that was okay. Then you start getting the viral diseases and you start getting the white spot and so on. Those, you can't vaccinate it. You can manage a little bit better, but a lot of the risk is associated with the hatchery, with the seed being infected. With the baby shrimp. Correct. Or the disease moving from one pond to the other. And then you start having other things that are like early mortality syndrome and other parasites. Basically, they affect also the production. They, they, the shrimp stops growing, for example, and so on. Why do shrimp get so many diseases? Do they not have very much of an immune system? Yeah, they don't have a, a, an adaptive immune system. That's one thing. The other thing is, um, you know, when you put animals into concentrated areas, then they start. you start seeing things that you didn't see before. All these different diseases. Is this why imported shrimp in the United States has such a reputation for antibiotic use? Yeah, partially, yes, because uh, if you can't vaccinate then and you get a disease and the value is very high, then as a farmer, when you see a disease hitting and somebody tells you that you should use a certain product and that product contains antibiotics, then you would use it because you don't want to lose all the pro production that you had for the last four months, let's say. You know, it's all your livelihood. Therefore, you, you will use the, the product. So if the shrimp did not have diseases and if there was a proper system for tell for diagnostics and for uh, recommending to shrimp farmers what products to use and the shrimp was less of a valuable crop, then probably would have less problems with antibiotics. From your perspective, is the antibiotic situation with shrimp under control or not? How do you define under control? So, <laughs> you know, is a crime like Putin. is a is a crime in New York under control? Hmm. You know, so there is always some. <laughs> yes, but I'm I'm not eating criminals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but you live in a city that is uh, surrounded by 
if you say that it's not under control, you are in a criminal city. No, what I'm saying is, so there is always somebody that breaks the rules. Uh, I think is much more under control than what it used to be. It is a problem that the youth will not face in capture fisheries, but in capture fisheries, you would face other problems. It's always a matter of trade-offs. So the risk of having antibiotics in the product that you are eating are not very high, generally. I mean, because, they, especially in the developed world, uh, so in, in, in North America, in Europe, because there are a bunch of controls put in place, but you are basically just managing the risk. So you end up reducing the risk quite dramatically. I feed my kids shrimp. Yes, maybe but there is going to be a shrimp with antibiotics that escaped the checks from a processing plant that did not check and they was, was tested, but they didn't detect it. And then they bought from that farm where they use it and it was not, not detected either. It's all possible. But at the same time, I mean, the likelihood is not very, very high. But yeah, it is possible. Now, another thing we've been hearing about shrimp a lot was this slave labor story that broke. And it seems to have a connection to the shrimp farming industry as well as the the wild fisheries as well. Can you explain that a little bit? And is it an actual problem when the consumers should think about when they're going to buy shrimp? Oh, that's a very good question. So yes, there is a connection uh, with the shrimp farming. And the connection is that shrimp feed is made uh, often with the fish meal and that the fish meal is coming from fish. And that fish, the way that the fish is harvested, um, could be in a breach of labor conditions and in some cases use uh, slave labor. And that's what uh, happened. So somebody that basically followed the shrimp, actually followed the, the fish meal that was produced from boats that were using slave labor, and then uh, that the fish meal then ended up into feed, which then ended up into shrimp, which then ended up into some of the big retailers. Therefore, it was an issue, and it uh, arguably it still is, and it's also about uh, risk management. It's a very localized, I mean, this type of issues are, were happening in, uh, in uh, Southeast Asia and in a couple of countries, and it's uh, getting much better. Uh, there, is, uh, there are a bunch of recognitions on the fact that Thai government, for example, have really worked very hard to deal with these issues. The industry set up this uh, seafood task force, which was led by retailers in uh, North America, in Europe, to try to fix this and try to say, listen, as an industry, we take responsibility and we try to develop systems to reduce that risk. And they have, they have a quite considerable successes, but it's not, it's again, it's about risk management. And I think the industry and the governments are uh, really trying to manage that risk. So, you know, you mentioned trade-offs and it's always something that comes up when you talk about wild fisheries versus aquaculture. But then there's this sort of third thing that's appeared lately. I was wondering how you as an Italian, I mean, you're an Italian. Gosh, I mean, you love real food, right? What... <laughs> <laughs> when I say the words vegan shrimp to you, what do you do? So uh, just to add to the picture, there is a cultivated uh, shrimp as well. Huh? There is a, a cell-based shrimp, which is uh, basically making the shrimp uh, without the animal. Uh, You're familiar with that? I've heard about it, but I didn't know. I thought it was a beta thing. I mean, I didn't realize it was actually no, on the market it is, yet. It is, a, it is a real thing. Well, is it is it like a kind of cloning the shrimp kind of thing? Or is it like growing the flesh on a scaffold? Like how does it, what is it? Yeah, so basically what you do, so if you think about the shrimp farming, you take nutrients, you make them into a feed, and then you feed the animal. And then from the animal, you extract what you eat, which is the, the tail, basically. And that becomes the seafood that you put in a skewer and then you eat it. 
what a cell-based um, um, aquaculture does, you take the nutrients and you convert them straight into the seafood. And basically, so what you're, you're, you're basically growing the cells in a scaffold, uh, you use the right word, you grow the cells in a way in which you end up only having the tail, only having the product that you want to eat, without having to deal with animal welfare, with uh, how the shrimp are grown, without having to create parts of the shrimp that actually you don't eat and you will never eat. So you simply say you convert nutrients into beautiful seafood. And there is no reason why that would be something that uh, a consumer should not uh, like. Let's turn it around. So what we like, you like the food, okay? And you're right, you know, being Italian, I like the food. I like, I like the taste. I like the texture. I like the way it's prepared. I like all these, these emotions that having something on your tongue that you can feel it and then the way you chew it, that is what is the pleasure that you're getting. So if this is coming from a shrimp, from an animal, or it's coming from some other way of making it in a way in which is equally healthy, that is not, you say, oh my God, this is overprocessed, and it comes with all uh, sort of other risks. So if you could recreate that taste, that texture, why would you not do that? If you can have the same experience without having to kill the animal, why not? especially in the world in which we are we are now there is a growing population which eats increasingly amounts of uh, of uh, proteins because the middle class is growing and we are talking about a global population which implies also africa all these new people will actually want to eat uh, more proteins so what is the trade-offs yeah we give them shrimp to all of them yeah you can do that but then you have trade-offs then you say, okay, well, you know, you have to make the feed and you have the inefficiencies and you have to find some land where to grow it, or you can produce it in, with a lower, with the same texture and the same pleasure without having the, the natural resources uh, used for making the, the shrimp. Why not put it as a, an alternative for, uh, for the normal shrimp? So if you could have the same taste, same texture, and it was a choice between the farm or the laboratory, you'd choose the laboratory? If the price was the same, probably yes. And I would do it for environmental reasons. In a future that is uh, resource scarce, I am not sure how much space there is for uh, traditional um, aquaculture as it is done uh, now. As Flavia pointed out, there's a lot going on with what I'd call aquaculture 2.0, cell-based growing of different species, but also plant-based imitations. I couldn't get my hands on the cell-based stuff, that product is coming in the next year. But I was able to try Mind Blown Shrimp, a fully vegan shrimp produced by the plant-based seafood company. To understand how you make a shrimp out of plants, I checked in with the company's co-founder, Monica Van Cleve Talbert. Can you tell me the backstory of your company and how you came to a plant-based shrimp? Sure. I like to say we didn't go out looking to create plant-based seafood or, or shrimp, really plant-based uh, products found us. We are an all-female family-owned company. We're actually headquartered on a little island in the Chesapeake Bay. We started off at a tiny little crab shack and market um, that my mom started back in 2000. And we, over the years, grew into a larger market. We sold you know, over 300 different varieties of seafood. We added on a restaurant and a gift store, and we were really successful. We loved what we did. We loved our suppliers. It was really close-knit suppliers. We even vacationed you know, with our crabbers. 
2013, we had an opportunity to take some of our really popular menu items from the restaurant and go into retail, which I don't think is a typical step from a, you know, a seafood market to turn into a CPG company. But that's what we did. I think the second generation in the family was looking for something new, tired of smelling like a, you know, a stinky fish market. So we, pun intended, dove headfirst, got onto about a thousand grocery store shelves, onto Oprah's favorite list, sold on QVC, and really just exploded. How did you go from the small family, local business, sourcing from local product, to this really fast-growing, now soon-to-be international company that is actually developing seafood products that have no seafood in them at all. So going from a smaller seafood market with, with local crabbermen to then getting onto retail shelves and needing to pull in more volume, our local fishermen and, and watermen couldn't supply such a, a large volume. So we had to look elsewhere. And we started sourcing you know, containers from Indonesia, or Mexico, pulling in half containers of scallops from Argentina. We just entered a completely different market and industry, a very, very global, diverse, kind of dynamic and sometimes mysterious industry. We found that a lot of fish and scallops were being pumped with chemicals, but not disclosed on the labels. And that was kind of just like a normal thing. Everyone turned a blind eye to it or, or chuckled, you know, about it or how fish was mislabeled or, or crab meat was being mislabeled and pulling it in from Indonesia, repacking it and selling it as Chesapeake Bay crab meat, connecting slave labor and human trafficking and, and child labor to seafood supply chains in our, you know, our U.S. industry, I think we just took a step back and just said, what is going on? And how is this just going on without any outrage? There is so much that consumers don't know that they're contributing to. We want to do something about it. Our answer to this was create this brand, Wild Skinny Clean. And that was our not only our answer to what was going on as far and in giving consumers something that they could trust, but it was something that we were going to as a platform that we were going to stand upon and, and educate consumers so they could make better, well-informed decisions. We were dedicated to all wild and American sustainably caught seafood with great ingredients and no chemicals. And at the last minute, we had been developing a plant-based crab cake. And we were having a lot of fun with it because, you know, we were fooling people, lifelong seafood eaters. The more we had been developing this crab cake, we thought, wow, it really fits in with what we're trying to accomplish with Wild Skinny Clean. We launched the brand and, and added the plant-based crab cake at the last minute, actually. And the next day we were getting, you know, all of these phone calls from all over the world with all of this excitement about what was going on and, you know, with Wild Skinny Clean. And, and we thought, wow, this is it. Here we are. We've made it. Here we go. Let's disrupt the industry. Nobody wanted to talk about the fish. It was all about the plant-based crab cake. It was at that time, I think we all just sat down and we looked at each other and we were like, well, if we wanted to create a splash in the industry, if we wanted to create change and, and disrupt things, it was the plant-based seafood that was going to do it. I was talking uh, earlier in the week with folks down in Louisiana who do wild Gulf shrimp. If a local American fisherman is finding the idea of a vegan shrimp upsetting, like what's your response to them? There's not unlimited shrimp uh, in the Gulf. There is a limit to what you can fish. There's a lot of issues that go on, I think, even in the wild catch of our American uh, seafood companies. You have five pounds of unintended catch for every one pound of shrimp. 
there's a lot of consumers that don't want to, you know, contribute to that. We see ourselves as part of the sustainable seafood aisle. We are part of the solution. We are not the only solution. So we don't look at ourselves as like a vegan company. I see ourselves as still in the seafood industry. We are creating a seafood experience that is not contributing to overfishing. So just the same points that aquaculture had years ago. So the seafood industry pushed back hardcore on aquaculture, but they are offering a sustainable solution to the demand, which keeps increasing and will continue to increase. So we see ourselves in you know, doing that same thing. That is what makes us different than a lot of other plant-based seafood companies that are on the market that push veganism. You mean these other companies are really just saying, stop eating the fish, let's just eat plants? Oh, absolutely. So what's in this thing? So our mind-blown plant-based shrimp, it's konjac powder, vegetable gum, vegetable root starch, paprika, round sugar, sea salt, and then plant-based vegan seasonings. So what makes the bounce back that you would have in a real shrimp or, or even a scallop as well is konjac. So konjac is a tubular root vegetable grown in tropical environments. And in its powdered form, you're able to add it with water and then you know put it into a mold and it, and it makes a gelatin. That's how the shrimp is made. You've also got vegetable gum and vegetable root starch. What are those? Which is like a typical gum that would, you would use for consistency and, and to keep it all together. And then we have just typical regular seasonings that you would have in, in a real shrimp and paprika to give the, the color. And then also some brown sugar because, you know, shrimp, the seafood has a, has a sweetness to it. For sure. Okay. So have you done any kind of life cycle analyses on these to understand like what's the carbon footprint of one of these versus a farm shrimp or versus a wild shrimp? Do we know? That's a really important question. And we knew from the get-go that we would have to get very specific with all of those things. So that's something that we're still working on, but hope to have actually within the next few months. And that's something that a lot of customers ask us as well. So I fried the shrimp and our guest chef is Andrea Rusing, who has a very popular, successful restaurant called Lantern in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And we had a big laugh because we were talking about the days of the 70s and 80s when like the unlimited shrimp and salad bar appeared. And then also what the, the sort of luxuriousness of having that kind of cold, icy cold boiled shrimp that you'd have in a shrimp cocktail. So can I take one of these and do that with it? Or is it still kind of, are we not up to shrimp cocktail potential yet? Well, I think that's a personal choice. We have a lot of people that will do shrimp cocktail. We have people or customers that will put that in like a ceviche as well, like in a kind of like a raw form or just not dusted form, just a plain. And, you know, maybe others that maybe people that you know, eat a lot of seafood, it, that might be a little far off for them. So I think it's, it's up to personal choice. And how did they all taste? Well, here's the big reveal. Back with my co-host, Nick Mink, and Chef Andrea Rusing. All right, should we do the same thing? Should we go wild farmed vegan? All right, so let's everyone take a bite of the wild. What do we think, Andrea? It's shrimpy. It's juicy. It has that real, like, almost like shrimp bisque flavor. Like if you were in 
transported to like a French restaurant in the in the 60s or something, where it's like shellfish nage broth. Yum. Yeah, there's a lot of shell in it. I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but there is a smell to wild shrimp that, that to me, in a weird way, reminds me of the smell of a Band-Aid. I, you know, it's. I think it's the iodine, right? Isn't mm, there iodine mm-hmm. in wild yeah. shrimp? So that's what it is. There, there is an iodine-y taste to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a really, really powerful. At like a little moment, about two thirds of the way through eating it, it's this rush of, as you said, Andrea, shrimp bisque just hits you in the back of the mouth, and then it goes away. It's yeah. really fascinating. Right, clean like that, kind of yep. just like it's there and then it's gone, and it. Yep. It is that kind of magic of the the shrimp cocktail, like just why that is such a desirable and symbolic piece of American Americana and wealth and entitlement is just like that feeling of just grabbing that tail and like it fills your mouth and then take a sip of your martini and go back for more. That's why going back to the shrimp, shrimp, shrimp commercial, that's why that moment in our childhood when suddenly shrimp was just hugely available and affordable, which I think was due to a number of things, be it the booming of farming or the expansion of American fishing fleets, but just suddenly that it was cheap that everybody, you could have a shrimp cocktail. Right. You deserve a shrimp cocktail. You deserve a free shrimp cocktail. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my dad used to work for MetLife and they had all these receptions at the U S open and just various places where I'd bring my friends when we were in college and we didn't have any money. And the events became not known as like a MetLife, whatever reception. It just became, it's a chance to get MetLife shrimp. And that was probably <laughs> like in 1988 <laughs> or so I had a lot of social power because I had access to those MetLife shrimp. And Esther, my partner, her father used to take her to the free shrimp and salad bar at Beefsteak Charlie's, and he delighted in, he's like, don't you want more shrimp? Like he would always send her back to the shrimp bar again and again and again. <laughs> and, he, and the price, you know, the price of the dinner, which was like, what, I don't know, 25 bucks, it just got cheaper and cheaper on a per pound basis <laughs> the more times she went back to the, <laughs> to the salad bar. <laughs> All right, enough fun. Let's move on to the farm shrimp. Let's take a bite. What do we think? I think this is what the Joe San or the the sanitary folks mean by like what people want in shrimp and what people think of as shrimp now, especially in the beefsteak Charlie's kind of popping shrimp in your mouth. Very mild, juicy, tastes almost like it was brined somehow. The yeah. flavor's like in there, but it's like not the flavor, it's like the salt. Yeah, you're tasting I get that. You taste instead of that kind of slug of shrimp bisque taste. You get a slug of salt, mm-hmm. very mild, and actually really, uh, I, uh, do you guys think firmer texture? Yeah. I'm kind of going back and forth. I'm, I'm popping wild and farmed in my mouth at random. Yeah, I would say you really do notice the bisky, strong iodine taste when you go back and forth between them. It's really, it's very, very notable. Yeah, really pronounced. All right, well, let's eat a shrimp that never died, <laughs> the, the fake shrimp. Is everyone ready for this? Yep. Blow your mind. Ready? What do we think, Andrea? I kind of am like crazily, weirdly into the texture. Like it's like eating a symbol of shrimp. And I think like the first bite, you're kind of like, you want another one, you want another one. When the flavor comes through, it feels a lot like a product, like maybe a chip or 
has a little cool ranch with a little bit of maybe a little bit of bam paul prudhomme or emerald having to happen the texture is the thing that i kind of love about it most i could see it just without any flavor it being like a great kind of thing that you'd add to something like the way you would add tofu to a stew and you could have this like experience like a vegan or just somebody who cares and doesn't want to eat live shrimp could have the experience of that texture but maybe like in a coconut stew with fish sauce or a bunch of other vegetables because the texture is really cool. It reminds me, actually, surprisingly, it reminds me of surimi or fake crab. Mm-hmm. And I'm struck by, I don't know about you guys, I'm struck by how sweet it is. Mm-hmm. Much sweeter than the other. I think initially, uh, I'll have to go back for my next round, much sweeter than the first two. Now, I was the one who detected notes of Band-Aid in the wild shrimp. Would I be totally off piste if I said that I'm tasting notes of bologna? <laughs> it has like a fried bologna sandwich thing happening. Yeah. Yeah. So those are our three shrimp. Which was best? What does best even mean? It's an ongoing question, and the kind of question we're going to explore as we work our way around the ocean on our show. I hope you'll come back for another taste on our next episode of Fish Talk. This is Nick here again. Our fish talk fish tip today is going to be all about shrimp. Shrimp are some of the fastest cooking creatures in the sea. So don't leave the kitchen while you're cooking them. 30 seconds in the pan tops, flip them over another 30 seconds and take them out of the pan to cool. That way, every time you'll have perfectly cooked shrimp. How much do you know about the last fish you ate? Sitka Salmon Shares delivers responsibly sourced wild Alaska seafood to your doorstep. As a member, you'll receive a monthly share of delectable seafood, including favorites like halibut and coho salmon. And you'll be connected to the story behind your fish. Sitka Salmon Shares model ensures superior quality fish and traceability to the source, from the ocean to your plate. Meet your fishermen, browse recipes, and shop wild-caught Alaska seafood at SitkaSalmonShares.com. Guaranteed this wild fish will be the best you've ever cooked at home, or your money back.